Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. In this week's episode of State of the Art, we do things a little differently. It's our first live podcast as we're down here in Austin at South by Southwest on the TuneIn podcast stage. It's also the first time we've had a panel on State of the Art. So it was a fun challenge, but the end result is amazing. I was joined by Erica Gangsai, head of interactive media at SFMOMA, Andrew Herman, the founder of French Girls and the new education platform coming out called Mini Canvas, who you heard earlier this year on State of the Art, and Nahema Mehta, the co-founder and CEO of Absolute Art. I was really lucky to be able to ask these three about all the ways that technology is changing the way artists create, how they think about the idea of democratization in the art world, and how they think the art ecosystem is maturing and changing the overall experience of buying a piece of art. So please, grab a plate of barbecue and enjoy our South by Southwest panel discussion with Erica, Andrew, and Nahema. Hey everyone here and listening. My name is Ethan. I'm the host of State of the Art. Stay Art is a, a weekly podcast, uh, interview style that brings uh, some of the foremost leaders at the intersection of art and technology. Uh, and basically, we're trying to bring awareness to what's going on. There's so much happening in different pockets. And, and so we're the only platform out there that, that brings all these voices forward. Uh, everyone from institutions like SFMOMA to platforms like Behance to the head of community at Instagram, all talking about how artists are using technology uh, in interesting ways to both create art, get their art out there, connect with their audiences. I'm really excited to be here. So I have to tell you guys something. It's got to be a secret between all of us. I was supposed to do the first ever live podcast of State of the Art in three weeks in San Francisco. And then South By reached out and was like, hey, can you come here and do this? So they still think and they're still marketing it as the first ever State of the Art podcast that's live. But you guys are actually the ones that are going to get to experience this. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. And I've got a great panel that's going to uh, do most of the talking. Uh, so why don't you guys go through and introduce yourselves? All right. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Erica Gangzi. I'm the head of interpretive media for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And so what that means is that we're an in-house department of digital storytellers. We work in video, we work in audio, uh, we do games projects, and we also do interactive uh, installations in uh, the physical space of the museum. Um, and I'm also... Uh, sculptor who works mostly right now with puppetry. 
Awesome. I'm uh, Andrew Herman. I am the CEO and co-founder of uh, an app called French Girls, which is a uh, sort of community for digital artists. Um, and we're also working on education products for people learning how to draw and get started in their own sort of creative careers. I am Nehama Mehta, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Absolute Art. Our mission is all about making art as easy to consume as music. You go on absoluteart.com, you can find incredible art from all over the world, and we make it really seamless to collect and discover art that you love. So let's start off. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about, and I'm always interested, is um, on the this idea of the democratization of art. What does it mean? What does that word mean to you? And how do you think about uh, democratizing art and how technology may play a role in that? How long do you have? <laughs> you you um, have two minutes. <laughs> do you? Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, what you were just saying about art being as accessible and easy to discover as music is, I think, a really good place to start. I think that there are certain forms of media and certain forms of creative expression that people feel entitled to have an opinion about and feel entitled to, to dislike, you know, it's like, oh, I don't really like that style of music. I don't really like that artist's new album. But when it comes to art, I think people feel very intimidated as if it's not, um, it's not their place to have an opinion about a work of art. You need to have an education of some kind. You need to have a, you know, a degree of some kind in order to understand that if you, if you don't like it, it's because you don't get it. This is so true. We always talk about democratizing access to the art world because I think in many ways the art world is built on this idea of exclusivity, right? You don't have enough money to collect. You don't have the right connections to meet the artist. You find the entire thing a little intimidating. So what we really focus on and I think what our community would echo back to us is how inclusive absolute art is, right? So yeah. we work on this idea of collapsing the borders that you traditionally associate with collecting and discovering art. Um, and in addition to that inclusivity, we pair that with seamlessness, right? Because the two ways to sort of interact with the art world is one, to be able to have incredible access to it and discover it, but then also interact with it in a seamless way, right? So we always look at from discovery to display, how do we help you not only find the greatest artwork, but ensure that it's shipped to your door within 48 hours, that it's framed, that it's ready to go. How do we make this process just inviting and welcoming and and democratize access to the I, I art like world. discovery to display yeah because actually the display part is hard i mean even getting yeah. the, the, the hanging piece but anyway sorry Andrew. yeah i i think that um like one of the really interesting things to me about the idea of democratizing the art world is that like typically when you hear about democratization of any media you're talking about sort of distribution um and and people's sort of access to the art um, and I think the really interesting challenge with the art world is like, arguably, the art world has had that before the rest of the technology world, because as long as you've been able to share images, we've had that democratization, right? And yet, like from a business perspective, and from like a cultural perspective, that hasn't really landed in the same way that it has for other creative outlets, you know, music is the obvious example, but the example I like to use a lot is, is the, the cooking world, like the foodie revolution, mm -hmm. um, because it's, everybody's so close to music that they almost make it a separate thing. I don't think it is, but it's hard to make that analogy. Um, but the cooking world is really interesting because, you know, 25 years ago, if you went out to eat, you were either getting pasta or steak, right? 
Um, and there wasn't the same sort of community and sort of uh, multi-tiered approach to food, uh, food consumption. And now it's because of the distribution it's had and people getting interested both on the creator side and the consumption side. Um, it's, you know, we've seen the revolution just take off and people are making millions of dollars through YouTube by having their own cooking channels. So for me, one of the really interesting questions is what are we doing on the sort of creator side um, to, to actually see visual art get that boost? You know, I, I think I will just add on to that because I think that um, art has become in the past you know, handful of decades, increasingly parasitical to the luxury goods industry. I mean, in uh, re in reality, I mean, the fine art sort of blue chip art market. And I think as a result, people think of art as a high-end commodity, like a Louis Vuitton handbag that they could never afford. They also think of it as a commodity that they need yeah. to purchase and that they need to be wealthy enough to purchase as opposed to thinking of creativity and your own creativity as its own source of wealth. So true. And I think it, it comes down to how do we bridge that gap between artists creating and people collecting, right? And I love your analogy because I, I always uh, liken the art world to where fashion was 10, 13 years ago. You know, you used to say, oh, you, no one's ever going to buy a $200 coat online. That's never going to happen. And now it is not only happening, it's one of the preferred ways to interact with that industry. Um, so I really think it's it's about not only looking at how we can afford access to different styles of art and artists, but also think about the entire process. You mentioned the hanging part is really hard. One of the things we've been working on is something called HangSmart, which we launched on Kickstarter and got super funded, which was amazing. But it's all about, you know, this patented hanging device that you mount on the wall and you can move your art right, left, up or down and it stays perfectly level. But really, how can we think about the entire process from A to Z? So it can help the artists and the collectors be in better conversation communication with each other. Yeah, I think, you know, in a big part of the democratization, like uh, I really like your point, um, Erica, of uh, sort of this synonymization of um, art and and uh, wealth and, you know, elitism. And, you know, it's it's put on this pedestal in our culture. And like it literally, uh, yeah, li right, <laughs> literally. right, 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 behind and, glass, <laughs> right. And it's like our, our our mission is to sort of deconstruct that. Like our our logo at French Girls is a fat red haired man in a speedo. So like, where'd you, you know, get that inspiration from? I What's that? <laughs> yeah, Too yeah, bad yeah. this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah, imagine a fat red haired man in a speedo. Everybody. <laughs> it is every bit as luxurious as you would think. But like, you know, and people, you know, at first glance, people think we're like, you know, we're, we're like the San Francisco, like tech bros who are just like being jokesters and like, yeah, we have part of that in our DNA for sure. But like, it's also a very intentional deconstruction of the seriousness of the art world. Um, and that's largely why we've moved into education products because, um, there's such a low literacy for basic understanding of visual creativity in our culture like the example i always use is if you ask you know john doe on the street who their favorite artist or painter is if you get an answer it's going to be one of the greats right one of the masters and like that's cool but that's like asking someone who their favorite band is and they're like bah 
Yeah. You're like, nah, bullshit, man. Like, uh, a colleague <laughs> of mine actually was doing an anthropological survey of um, counties far out from the Bay Area, like in the California Central Valley, and asking people just, you know, ding-donging like doorbells in ordinary homes and asking people what their favorite piece of art in their home was. Yeah. And it would be like a sun-faded Van Gogh poster that they'd got at like a <laughs> thrift store in a state sale or like yeah. a, you know, a ceramic thing that their kid had made, you know, like what people actually relate to and what people encounter when they come to a museum or something is really different. And I'm really appreciative that you're both doing work to bridge the gap. Yeah. Absolutely. Andrew, you said something I really like where you're like, there is a place for serious art and there should be serious art, but there should also be fun art. So let serious art be serious and let, you know, fun art be fun. Um, I I think it should be contextualized. It's all a question of contextualization, right? I think a lot of times you are confronted with so many JPEGs just thrown at you and you have no idea the story around Mm -hmm. it. And when you actually tell the story of living, breathing artists, go into studio Mm -hmm. and showcase what they're creating as they're creating it, Mm -hmm. suddenly you open up what art is into an entirely different dimension. You're not only talking about blue chip artists, you're talking about all the creators living all around the world and and making things. I would actually, I would interrogate the idea that there is such a thing as serious art and fun art. I think that um, serious is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, one example that I'll give that, you know, we were talking about is, um, you know, in terms of the multi, uh, in terms of democratization, one of the things that we try to do on our platform is incorporate a multiplicity of voices. So we have like a pagan priestess talking about Martin Perrier. We have Philippe Petit, the high wire artist talking about um, his tour is called Unbalanced and it's about how artists need to be a little bit unhinged and obsessive and dare I say it crazy. You know, I mean, artists are amazing, obsessive weirdos. But the thing that I, the tour that I think I love the most is a tour called I Don't Get It, where we worked with um, Kumail Nanjani and Martin Starr from Silicon Valley. And they are basically walking through the permanent collection, you know, all of the masters of our time, you know, Matisse and Duchamp and the surrealist galleries. And they are just roasting every single one, but they're heckling them (laughs) with a curator who is then sassing them right back. And, you know, it's not to say that every single time they both come away with an understanding of the artwork, but it doesn't matter. I think one of the important things is that um, we're abandoning the idea that there's such a thing as the story about a work of art and working on telling a story about a work of art. And so sometimes that story is with the artist themselves, but sometimes it's with a circus acrobat, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's allowing that conversation to happen, right? It's allowing, exactly. it's giving permission to people to have that conversation. And people shouldn't be asking for this permission either. I think the thing that I think all of us on this um, stage would agree on is, people should feel free to just have an opinion, like you said, and not feel like they need this special language to talk about yeah. art because art starts with that conversation. It might start in the audit, uh, in the artist studio, but that story sort of ends with the collector and how they yeah. talk about it in their homes. I, I completely agree with that, but I think there's this <clears throat> really dangerous mythos around the artist yeah. in our culture. Yep. And it's um, unfortunately for many artist personalities itself perpetuating because it can be a defensive thing because artists have, you know, one extreme of artists have, um, very defensive personalities and they have confidence 
issues and they, you know, and their, their whole perspective on our world is very different than most people's perspective. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's for John Doe. It can be a very, very intimidating thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, you know, the, the mouse and the elephant, like everybody is afraid of the other party. And so you kind of assume the worst, but this, there's this mythos around the fact that, artists are born different and that there's this magic that they have and they own that nobody else has access to. And from my perspective, that's really damaging. Like, obviously it's damaging because it's exclusive, but it's also really damaging because it doesn't acknowledge how hard artists have to work to be good at what they do. Mm -hmm. And that's why, again, like it's for us, education is so interesting because you give and we've done this, we've done a lot of research and we've had our own engineers, excuse me, take drawing classes. And after one lesson where you start to explain what line quality is to them, right. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden they're like, Oh, like I can see art in a completely different way now. Yeah. Um, And it's that, but you have to deconstruct that mythos Mm -hmm. and you have to explain to people that like, yes, there's weird artists in mm-hmm. visual art, just like there is in every other form of, of art. Yeah. Um, but it's a full spectrum and you absolutely have access to the skills that they have. Yeah. You have to show up in the studio every day. You can't just wait for inspiration to strike. And I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of individualistic myth of the genius and like the masterpiece mentality are right. actually, um, you know, in a lot of ways tied into a system of valuation that had to come about with the like advent and then popularization of conceptual art that basically when you're looking at, you know, a typewritten document that's signed by an artist, it's not particularly hard to make. Anyone can do it. And it's one of the things that's really interesting about a lot of, you know, sort of mid century to late 20th century, you know, conceptual and performance artists is it's not hard to, you know, it's not hard to arrange rocks in a pile. It's not hard to walk around your studio and film yourself. The thing that is unique about it is the comment that you're making. And so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a complicated space because it's a space that goes beyond skill or physical dexterity and gets into conceptual dexterity. But I agree with you. I think that the other reason why people feel like they're not empowered as creators is they feel like artists are special. I mean, the thing about artists is they just, they are a person who just got obsessed with something and never put it down. They're just like, I'm obsessed with this and I'm never going to let it go. You know? How do you guys think about the balance and technology's role in sort of giving artists access to get their work out there and sort of between um, sort of populism and, and dumbing down. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear from like a, a platform perspective where, uh, yeah, artists to other artists or other people say, oh, that's not real art. And it's bad that they're getting their artwork out there first and that this person who's never bought art is buying from them first because that's just going to sort of ruin their perspective. I, I call that like the college stoner debate. Because like that's I've heard that debate the college so, stoner debate. I like yeah, that. man. Like I've heard that debate so many times. Like sitting on front porches at Penn State, and the thing is, it's an unwin- it's an unwinnable debate, right? And you can't 
like the you know you get into like the hippie conversations about like what is art and you know those those conversations are fun mm-hmm. because art is very meaningful for everyone but at the end of the day it's too like you know I, I think anybody who's reasonably intelligent understands that artists who abstract a concept to be able to fit into any kind of a box like that and so like i i think that i love that debate but but for me i always look at what's the difference between the visual art world and any other art medium because that that exists in every like man the idea of the sellout musician has been around for as long as there's been money and instruments and so like it's not a new debate to me what's interesting is um what's different about it in the visual art world um and why is that better or worse for the visual art world? And for whatever reason, it seems to be much more effective in the visual art world. Like it seems to actually leave people out of getting their work out there. That's true. And, and at this point, it's almost a moot point now, right? Because we're dealing with a brave new world of technology and new mm-hmm. tools that are now at the disposal of all these artists, whether it is using social media like Instagram to create an entire following that they then... Uh, have a really serious business around, right? The tools are changing. So the conversation around how artwork ends up in a museum has to change as well, because the way we're interacting as um, our generation is very different to how patronage was existing many decades ago. And so to make those parallels now, I think we need to move past that. We need to say, yeah. okay, how does this now proliferation of technology allow us to have new conversations about how art is experienced and how art is put into historical context? And if we don't allow ourselves that freedom, you get stuck in paradigms that just don't fit the current. Why do you think we're stuck there? What's the, why is there resistance? I think there's fear, right? There's always fear in change. And there's always fear in institutions not necessarily having the voice uh, that is not dictatorial, I would say, but the absolute voice mm-hmm. in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, now the voices and the preferred method of, of even discovery is coming peer to peer, right? Is becoming artist to consumer or artist to artist. And that is a scary thing when you wonder, okay, how do we even talk about this industry a hundred years from now? What are people going to say? The instinct is to protect the narrative. But in reality, we just have to be conscious that the narrative and the way that narrative is being told is shifting. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, you know, the other thing to know is that, um, you can't control the narrative of the time you're living in, you know, art historically. I mean, I've, now been through several rounds of contemporary shows at SFMOMA where we're showing work made since 2000. And the positioning meetings for those shows where we're trying to get at what the theme is, we're like, well, it's sort of about politics and it's sort of about identity. And it's like, no, it's about now. Every single piece is about now and you can't historicize now while you're living it. Exactly. And I I don't know, like, I'm, I'm not so afraid of that debate like Mm -hmm. it's uh, half the fun of art is like you know getting drunk on wine and eating cheese and like (laughs) yelling about what is real art and pounding your fists and stuff right like so like i'm not so concerned about the debate it's only harmful whenever it stops people from from doing what they want to do if it Mm -hmm. means getting their work out there and and um not you know being afraid to show because they think that it's not the right venue they don't want to use instagram because um they think that they're like alienating someone or it's disrespectful to their art and like it's a personal choice 
I think it's damaging. My goal in what we're doing is like to upset the purists. Like, because for me, upsetting the purists means that there's going to be a billion more people in this world who actually care about art. And the purists can can be exclusionary about that and wish that it was like the old days where it was just them in the in the galleries. Um, I see that as a good thing. And I, I don't know if I'm right, but that's sort of my perspective. But I think that. I think we also have to give the industry a little bit of credit, right? I, I've I've sort of seen this. I sort of entered the game in 2010, and I would say just over the past eight years, the difference in the existing art world ecosystem being open to new channels, moving online. I mean, I remember at that time, people were like. I'm never coming on a website. We will never put our artists here. And artists just freaking out. Does this mean my gallery won't be uh, happy? Will this mean my work won't be worth as much? But we have actually come quite far, not quickly enough, but it is changing. And I think, you know, as long as we keep having these conversations and making sure that they're not closing doors on opportunities, then we'll keep pushing forward. I think that one of the important things, though, is to understand that when you're dealing with a work of art, you're still dealing with a physical artwork. And I think that a lot of the insecurity on the part of you know artists and gallerists is this idea that if you can see everything online, it's not worth going to the gallery anymore. It's not worth owning a work of art anymore if you've been able to bookmark it on your Instagram. And I think that um, that's simply not True. That's but like saying I hearing think, music online means you're not exactly. going to go to a, a concert. Exactly. Exactly. But I think that um, that's where the work that uh, my team does at SF Mama, I think, is really vital because, you know, a gallery is, in my opinion, a sacred space. If a person has actually managed to get through all of the, you know, physical and financial challenge of getting to a major institution or, you know, an art fair, and they're standing in front of an original work of art, I want to make sure that their eye is guided in a thoughtful manner around that work of art and that they are given a conceptual foothold. And our app is a phone in pocket audio first experience that just uh, talks in your ear and knows where you are in a creepy but fantastic <laughs> way um, in order to tell you stories about the things that you're encountering. The idea being that you're supposed to have a, a physical and a visual and by having a physical and visual, hopefully an intellectual and maybe even spiritual experience with this original object that a human person crafted. Yeah. See, and I think what's really interesting about what you create in the app is, I mean, bringing it sort of directly to technology is it's things like the improvement of, you know, location devices within a phone that makes it so that it can know within exact, like within a foot of where you are. It's, it's the improvement of, of creating video that you tie into what you're doing. It's the ability to, which is going to be very creepy, but like, you know, you can audit, you can edit audio using like text. So, you know, someone says something, it captures the voice and then they can type up essentially a new sentence to like edit it. Yep. So, cause you know, you can think like how much you would need to edit voice to make it perfect. So it is a great experience. What, um, what other examples do we see or where do we think technology is really enabling art and what technology do you think sort of needs to happen? Because I mean, we all talk about it changing. Do we feel like it's moving fast enough? Do we feel like more people, you know, are buying art at the rate we'd want to see um, that technology's helped, you know, other industries adapt, right? So how fast has Uber exploded? I mean, these other... I, I think that, you know, we, we, we get in like the, you know, I work in San Francisco um, and we get in this tech bubble, right? And, and, 
um, you know, even South by Southwest, right? Like there's the big technology component here. And we start to ask this question, like, how do we, how do we push the technology to help the, the, the thing that we're trying to disrupt? And like the nerd in me is like, yeah, that's awesome. Right. But the, the, um, sort of pragmatist in me is like, well, it's gotta be the right tool for the job. And my personal opinion is that people have been sort of addressing the problem the wrong way. I think that um, the easy solution for the technology standpoint is distribution and marketplace. And we made that mistake with French girls. Like that's, we thought that was going to be sort of what got us over the edge. But what we found is that the problem in sort of uh, the modern art world is, is not really the distribution. Like you can get it. It's, it's that like the culture around art, is very, very broken. Um, we don't have the same appetite for it here, here specifically in this country that they do in other places in the world. And it's, it's again, that culture is really broken. So for me, it's the way that I kind of see it is there's this giant spectrum from the folk art world to the fine art world. Um, where fine art is people who go to school for this, who spend their life, you know, 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, eating, breathing, sleeping this, right? Um, the folk art world is like by textbook definition is art that is passed down generationally instead of by education. So it's, I learned it from my dad who learned it from his dad or my mom who learned it from her mom, right? But symbolically, it's more, um, it's more about populist art, art that is more relatable, art that feels a little bit more natural than heady. And so like, you know, you, you challenged the idea earlier of sort of like serious art versus silly art. And I think there's something to be challenged there, but there is also this reality that you have to meet people where they are. And um, I think for me, the role of technology has to be that. We have to find a way to meet people at the starting point of their journey because the gallery scene will never go away and it never should. But that's a fine art phenomenon. That to me is um, very similar to paying a lot of money to go to like the perfect acoustic room to hear um, classical or jazz or, you know, something that takes a little bit more of a mature palette. But people have like you don't wake up one day and start listening to jazz. You start with pop music and by the way, this is studied that you, you tend to like what you know. So you have to take A to B to C to D. You can't go from A to Z. So you listen to pop music that brings you to older pop music that brings you to classic rock that might bring you to blues that might bring you to jazz, right? I, I would actually, I would question that the idea that the gallery system is that refined in San Francisco. I mean, I yeah, have friends yeah. who have bathroom galleries, hallway galleries, garage galleries. Yeah. I have a friend who literally once a month puts all of his furniture in storage so that he can do a pop-up gallery in his studio apartment in yeah. the Tenderloin. I think that, you know, the the issue, and I think it's actually interesting, both of us being from San Francisco and being on this panel, I think that there is a fundamental difference in the style of communication, that it's not actually about Values. I think that we all believe in the fact that we live in the innovation hub of right, right. the world. It's just that for people who are visual artists, it means something really different. And so I'm really interested in finding ways for the people who go to the barn next to my friend's gallery in the Mission District to actually also be aware of the fact that there is a gallery and be aware of the fact that that gallery is 
for them. And I think that, you know, that perception that art is a rarefied experience like the symphony is, um, yeah, I mean, in, in the same way, I would say, you know, I, classical musicians also play in the subway for right. money. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a range, there's a continuum. And right. I believe that art should be free and accessible. Can, right. can and I make a real I, quick point? I'm sorry, just because I think that's really, really important. The, the real quick point I want to make is I think it's a very different experience for the artist than it is for the art consumer. <laughs> because for the artist, you're completely right. And I don't think this problem of like the spectrum from folk art to fine art is a problem for artists. Because that that spectrum exists in the content. <laughs> it's the perception around it. And it's mm -hmm. how you get started. in that. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. Right. And, and even just talking to both those points, I think, you know, at Absolute Art, we really look at how we can add value to the existing ecosystem and how we can provide new channels to bring people in. But Ethan, to your point about what is the role of technology, I think there's an interesting question here because there are the sexy applications of technology and there are the unsexy applications of technology and both need to be addressed in the art world, right? So on the sexy side, you have how Instagram is disrupting things, how we can, how, how you're doing it with French girls, how, you know, we're looking at video content and, and using that offline as well at Absolute Art. But another thing that we really think about and want to focus on is the unsexy applications of technology, because that's really where technology can add value to the art world. So for example, how do, you know, we face this problem where we work with artists all over the world, right? And we um, sell their limited editions online, but to really ship things back and forth between the artists became incredibly time consuming and costly. And we thought, okay, at the time, how does Obama sign things, you know, across borders and have it be legally binding? Like what, what is being used there? So we hit up the people creating that technology and we said, let's create a similar technology for the art world. Let's see if we can allow people to sign in real time just across borders and allow us to have that distribution mechanism be more seamless, right? So this is something that we've brought into, into the equation. So really seeing where technology can help, you know, even the blockchain uh, discussions people are having now about certificates of authenticity and how we can actually use those to replace the physical ones. Of course, there's a myriad of problems around it, but it's a topic of discussion. So I think oftentimes we think about technology as, oh, throwing art online or, oh, having an Instagram account or, oh, you know, 
very almost obvious and fun things to talk about. But let's talk about the nitty gritty. Like, how can we actually refine distribution, production, fulfillment to make this industry as seamless as the ones who have now moved into our generation? Well, and can I just ask you guys a question? Like, how might we get to a place where infrastructure is thought of as sexy. Like if you're, if you want to manufacture widgets, you can't do it without a widget factory. Like you need a building. And so the idea that infrastructure isn't sexy, I mean, we're, we're all working within an industry that is built on infrastructure, on you know, information architecture, on systems. And so the idea that systems aren't sexy, you know, the idea that we're basically just looking at the tip of this massive iceberg and saying, oh, you know, Instagram is the cool part. Oh, pretty pictures are the good part. No, like well-run systems that make sustainable models for artists to live and work in cities and survive is That's the sexy part to me. Couldn't agree more. And I'm so happy that we're having that conversation. Um, But that's that's why I really push this idea that I think we get stuck in the traditional sexy conversations and we should kind of dig deeper. And what is the role of technology to actually create a very seamless ecosystem within the art world? International, yeah. So much disruption. International customs law is sexy. You know what else is sexy? Registration, conservation. (laughs) Uh, Crates, crates are sexy. Mm -hmm. Well, no, but shipping is another thing. You know, part of part of what we were thinking of when you guys receive an artwork. I mean, my husband's going to kill me. I have so many rolls (laughs) by the side of my door because I don't know how to frame them, and I do know how to frame them, but it is a pain. And those are unsustainable. They come with a ton of plastic. So part of what we did at Absolute Art is how do we change that? fine, let's create boxes that are completely sustainable that when you open it up like a book, it's framed and ready to go. Let's make sure that we're not adding to the degradation of our environment while, you know, sharing artworks. And I remember the fun and sexy part was, you know, we're a tiny little startup team, even though we're in a big company. When we first got those first iterations of the boxes, the way we tested them was to put a frame in them and throw them around the office and say, what is the worst FedEx could do to this? (laughs) And just throw them. And you know what? That's, but that's how you have to be. You have to just kind of be fearless about all of these elements and not stop at the discovery and purchase of art, but the entire ecosystem. I mean, on that piece specifically, because it is very unsexy, but uh, (laughs) we found, we did a survey and found that people, it takes them about four months on average to hang a piece of art. Exactly. And and yeah. the number one reason they don't buy their next piece of art is because they haven't hung the previous one. Yeah. And, and because they're like not ready. And the other slight thing that was a good insight was the social element, which is like once the art is hung and then people see it and they talk about it, then you really want to go back. And so it is very unsexy. And and yeah. I have I have an opinion that I'll I'll put out there and you can push back. I think there's a couple reasons. One is I think the entire ecosystem is struggling from a financial perspective that a, it's hard to get them to pay for services like CRMs or basic things that they, you know, the unsexy tools that are the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing is that art is very sexy. And so a lot of, yeah, I mean, to your point, the startups and sort of the money behind investigating these things just um, isn't there because it's, it's not sexy. But, but I, think the, I think the one thing think I'll, so I'll, I'll say is this, is that people <laughs> feel that it's getting hot. It's sort of like the, the movement of art. Can we, can we talk about data next? <laughs> <laughs> the, the movement of art isn't happening perhaps also at the scale that we'd want to see it to justify some of those 
things, right? So yeah. galleries aren't selling as much art as they want and they're all closing down. So they're not going to pay $100 for a CRM. Not seeing that, if they do do that, they'll engage with their customers better. They'll have a more personalized experience. Well, this is the thing, not yet, right? Yeah, it's, right it's not right. happening yet mm-hmm. because we're not providing the tools for the collector to feel, one, comfortable to even enter the industry and then, two, to feel comfortable interacting with it and putting you know it on their on their wall um i often say that many many times you're sort of dumped at checkout it's a little bit of a bad date you know mm-hmm. you purchase the art and then what then it's up to you to figure out the rest yes. and and you know engaging that collector base is so important and exp- and giving them new experiences you know when we sell out of an edition on absoluteart.com we launch another edition and say come to the artist studio Meet them, graduate from our platform and learn who they are, you know, consistently adding value to the experience and and, and taking care of the details of the entire process. Yeah. Sexy or unsexy need to be addressed if we're going to push yeah. this industry forward. And it is, depending on who you ask, between a 59 and $65 billion per year industry. Um, but that really is a commentary on the blue chip art sort of being sold uh, in the traditional spaces. And, you know, one thing I I see in the online art space um, is how do we choose to invest the capital that is given to us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, are we putting it and towards great offices and pretty ping pong tables, whatever it is. How are we choosing to use that investment? And and the way we're choosing to use it a lot at Absolute Art are things that you might not see that are back end behind the mm-hmm. scenes. But I think that's what's actually going to allow it to flourish. Yeah. I, I think also, you know, I mean, so you asked very pointedly, Erica, like, what what is it going to take? And, and I got to say, it, like, it's a very f- funny, I just saw the dynamic happen up here, right? Because for, for me, what it's going to take is, on the practical side, um, raw entrepreneurialism, because this is a huge market. Like, let's face it, like from a, from a number side, um, and from an opportunity side, considering how little it's been disrupted, there is a lot of money to be made here. And it's not about the money, but it's about for an entrepreneur, it's about the challenge of cracking that open. Right. But we're in a, we're, we're talking about a market in a space that's very, very sensitive to the conversation of money. And there's purists, uh, out there who are going to have a hard time with that. Yeah. But I will say that like to make that work, what needs to happen, what's going to make that happen is what's happening here. Yeah. And it's what, you know, what I think Ethan is doing a really good job of and it's bringing together these, these ideas because we can't like, look, I don't, I, I, as far as entrepreneurialism goes, like I like easy problems. I don't like hard problems. I like, it's easy for me to convince people that art is cool, but we need to be brain sharing with the people that can tackle those other problems. But, and so here's the thing is to be an artist is to be an entrepreneur. You basically come yeah, up true. with an idea and then you are, you know, if you're lucky, you have anybody working for you, helping you. And I've met artists who have teams of dozens and I've met artists who are literally just in their studio by themselves. But, you know, to be an artist is to be CEO, but you're also down on the production line, assembling things. You're doing quality control. You're doing marketing. You're doing, you're building your own website. Most artists are doing that. You're basically founding their own company and establishing their own brand. And, you know, some artists do resist that. And I think, you know, I'm actually one of those. I have a day job specifically because I have never been able to find a way to commodify my practice that feels genuine to me. 
Yeah. And I, I love my career and I love making art and I'm not interested in intertwining the two, but that is a personal choice for each artist. And I think helping artists navigate that for themselves, like, cause everybody has a, has a line. Some people's line is way further out and some <laughs> people, I mean, I know people who do subtle performance works in the urban environment that they don't even tell many people about, let alone photograph, document, post online, write about. And I believe that they're the truest artists I know in a lot of ways because they are doing it for no other reason than that they saw something in the world that they wanted to change in some way. They wanted to change the physical reality of the world that we live in so that we could all relate to the world a little differently. Yeah. But, but that's how, not to say that people who are selling themselves effectively through online channels aren't real artists also. Right. But how do we then bring that conversation of that creation to a larger audience, and, right? To yeah. expand that conversation. We're doing it. Tune in. We're, do, we're doing what, what, it. One thing, one thing I'll say that, that surprised me is, <laughs> is I created the podcast because I wanted to get all these ideas of what folks like this are doing out there to people who like artists that aren't familiar. One thing that really surprised me, which, you know, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at all of you is how little everyone I've had on the podcast. So the, the leaders in the space know about each other. And I feel like any kind of other industry, like, you know, sort of who your competitors are, you know, who, um, who else is doing something interesting in the space. And you've probably reached out to them and said, Hey, like, this is interesting. Let's partner together. Let's work together. That is not happening. Like none of us are doing that. No one else is doing right. it. And so it's so true. It, that to me is like, come on, like we, we have to, we have to connect, you know, it we is, need to yeah. come together, but we got to move forward and we got to talk about some sexy things we got an audience out there um, <laughs> and no one's cracked it that's uh, why we all have to come together to yeah, work to exactly well, and, nobody has and also it. there is no one solution i mean the field right. the field is an archipelago like we there are so many different solutions out there yeah. and it's just it's so vast right now and it's so full of opportunity but there isn't going to be one solution i think oh, many no, conversations like this as can happen you know that's the way that progress will be eventually yeah. Pull those resources and ideas. Yeah. Exactly. And one way to do this is to look at how other people have have solved it. And you talked about music as kind of its own category. I loved how you reached out to the White House about how they did like <laughs> electronic signatures. You actually did partner with you know a, an audio app, a tour app yeah. to do that. What other industries? I mean, you mentioned fruit too. Like, are there other industries out there, or very specific technologies, um, you know, in the fashion space that you think could be almost directly applied, or should be looked at very closely for the art world to think about? Journalism for me is an industry I look at a lot because what's happened with newspapers and magazines so has been <laughs> extraordinarily disruptive. And there are people in museums who spend a lot of time talking about what has happened with journalism with the advent of the internet and then mobile technology and what that means for us as brick and mortar institutions. Um, so that is an industry. The way that uh, journalists have adapted to the new technologies is something that we look at all the time. When we, um, our podcast, for example, every season, we uh, partner with a different podcaster in residence who picks their own topic and then explores it. And, um, you know, working with journalists is a wonderful way to bring the adaptation that they've had to uh, go through by necessity. So journalism and multimedia storytelling on a variety of different platforms, including still a physical newspaper, which I still adore. 
Right. We um, we often look at startups, uh, specifically online startups, startups that sort of started entirely online and are now moving into a more omnichannel approach and sort of seeing how does the online play nice with the offline, right? And I, I think that's such an interesting next stage for the art world because the the budding of heads between online versus offline doesn't need to exist, right? They should exist symbiotically. And, and something that we're exploring in at Absolute Art is how do we make that offline moment an experience that you couldn't possibly have online, right? And make sure that that experience is then fed into something you could only have online, mm. right? This sort of cycle between the two. And I think the online um, startup space is a great place to look for inspiration, whether it be an Everlane or a Warby Parker and sort of see how those models who were strictly online only sort of have moved offline a little bit um, and to start having those conversations about what the best marriage of the two looks I like. I like that. I think because my particular perspective on the problem comes from sort of a cultural perspective, um, not not to sound like too heady about it, but I, I look a lot more at like um, culture changers. Like who are the people who are like the single central figures that have led cultural change um, and how do they do it? Like that is an, an interesting um, problem to me that I don't think there could be any greater legacy personally than like to to feel like we have shifted culture to be more creative what's that for instance um again like this sounds heady but like you look at like the um mandalas of the world the like you know martin luther kings of the world the and even like on a slightly more like less self-righteous level um there's a guy named uh i think david silver is his name he was the founder of like cd baby back in the day and um, he talks a lot about like how to how to lead movements mm -hmm. and how you how you lead movements by supporting um, by supporting the people that are most central to the movement first. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting. So one of my favorite examples along those lines is actually Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's sure. because he yeah. has for decades now toured the world talking about how their company is run in a way that is both a successful business, but also as ethical as they can make a successful international business. Absolutely. And I think that that's another thing. I know that we don't have much time left, but I think that another thing that's really important in terms of bridging that gap is building trust yes. on both sides, you know, understanding that, you know, the physical artists who maybe their rent is going up because of the tech companies in the city that they live in, just for example, <laughs> um, you know, that, that, you know, building, building the trust between those two sides and yeah. helping you know, the art community, I'll speak on behalf of my people to understand that the technologists aren't just there to make a buck off of them, that there's real support and that the way that the organization is run is ethical. Yeah. I doing I good and doing well. Exactly. Yeah. I, it's so funny. I say all the time, I think that like, because I'm, I, I'm at a very strange intersection because I'm in a tech company working on the problem of how to bring art to more people um, in San Francisco. And, and I say all the time that it's really bizarre how similar the two camps of people are. Um, like technologists are for the most part, not money grubbers for the most part. They are 
idealists who feel like they can leave some small, medium, or large mark on the world, but they're very curious to figure out and are willing to sacrifice whatever they have to sacrifice to seize that idea of like, what is my mark, right? And that is fundamentally the same exact mentality you'll find out of an artist. The shame, obviously, is that one of those jobs pays you $150,000 a year. Like, there's the practical side of it's it. It's not true for an entrepreneur that's just kicking not from idea. No, you're right. You're I mean, right. You're right. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? There's that tension between many industries, um, tech and government, for example. You sure. know, one – tends to move a little quicker and the other a little slower. I do a ton of work with the UN. So I see this in that scenario as well, but it doesn't mean those conversations can't happen. You can't get past that. So I have so much confidence that those conversations between the two camps and not only will happen, are happening. If you look at any of our teams, probably you're going to see a combination of people coming from the art world, the technology world, and the business world. And I can tell you for a fact, this was not the case in 2010. Mm. People were starting sort of in their own lanes and refusing to talk to each other, thinking they know better. So it's happening. That's a good point. I mean, one I'll throw out there is the fashion industry you mentioned in, in Stitch yes. Fix, which is is a company where they provide recommendations and you have like a personal stylist. And, you know, one thing they've been able to do is is to scale a very personalized experience using technology on the back end to deliver, you know, a hundred pieces of art that you might like or, sorry, you know, dresses or pants or whatever that you might like. And then a stylist calls you and, and talks you through these, but because they have so much information on the back end, it makes a very simple experience. And I think in art, it's the same thing. People lack that confidence to make the decision and what they're, they're buying that even if you have the best recommendation out, you know, algorithm out there, they're going to like it, but it's gonna be hard to get them over to buy it. And so if you had someone who they could talk to easily and quickly, like St- Stitch Fix does that yeah. you could get them to buy. That validation point is so key. Also, badass founder of Stitch Fix. So yeah. Shout out. But um, I think that validation is key, you know, and we've been playing around not only with someone talking you through the process, but also we found that a lot of people buy art in pairs, right, with the person they live with. And the problem would be they would see it, but they would then have to have a discussion with another person. So we threw together an app where you sort of picked your favorite and they could scroll through Tinder-like to pick theirs, right, to see <laughs> that valid... And then you got a match. Ooh, got a I match, like that. Right? That's good. But th- this oh, idea God. of having a little bit of validation behind your choice and making that very easy to uh, to to do, yeah. to get that validation marker. And then, you know what, the next few pieces you buy, you you gain confidence like in anything else, but it's that first step. And the other thing, yeah, I agree with that. And then, you know, Stitch Fix went doing that on sort of from the, you know, buyer consumer side to then the the, the fashion designers. And what they're saying is using data, here's what people want that we don't have, there's no inventory out there that exists or there's not much choice out there. We're not telling you exactly what to create, but create something within these constraints. And the thing is constraints breed, um, you know, good ideas and innovation. So again, on the art world, I can imagine going to artists and saying, Hey, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of like this, or this is working or they want a local artist, uh, you know, create something, you know, we're not telling you what to create. We're giving you your creative, uh, freedom, but maybe create it within this area. Well, I mean, another thing that I'll just say is, um, you know, I think this work is so important. I think one of the things that's important is to understand that you will never convert all of the artists. I know so many artists who are hardcore anti-capitalist activists and um, will never trust 
any business enterprise that is um, working working on behalf of a larger creative community. But that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. I think that people need to be on all different places in the continuum. And I really admire both of your projects. Also, for that. trust trust like is you. earned. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I give the example of Absolute in the sense that Absolute's worked with artists for over 30 years, over 600 mm. artists mm-hmm. continuously. And that kind of integrity around what you're doing, that, that, breeds trust in the community that has allowed us to take this next step, which is to connect the artists with the collectors. So that, that trust is really earned over time. And I, and I think if you, if you are pursuing your mission in earnest and doing right by your artists and your end consumers, that pays off in the long run. It's interesting to see how many artists are now working with brands or how many more brands want to work with artists. Um, in the, in this sort of tension that's creating. I mean, it's happening. Like yeah. the, what, it's undeniable. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're doing market research all the time and all of the Google charts are trending up, right? Like this yeah. is a thing that's happening. Um, opportunities are more and more. Um, and you know, I, hopefully it's, it's the hockey stick and we're just at the beginning of that. Um, and, uh, you know, it hopefully just continues to grow. L- L- yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> we, we have a little time left. We're going to bring it back to the sexy because that's what everyone wants. Let's think of technology that's really sexy right now. Blockchain, virtual reality, machine learning, maybe there's something else. How do you think these technologies and, and art is, is being applied? There's, you know, now artists that are offering their own, you know, Bitcoin, which is like an artist <laughs> that you can buy her art. Right. Um, th- there is uh-huh. now yes. coins that are art themselves. So there's a guy, Crypto Graffiti who's in San Francisco, who's the actual coin. I'm so, I don't understand this as much as I should, but like is art itself. And um, anyways, how do you see these technologies affecting the art world? I I love the idea of, um, so, so we're working on education right now um, and specifically like education on a digital device, which is a very hard challenge um, for a lot of reasons. But I love the idea of using AI to make things more human and not less. I really love the idea that we can be using um, models and predictive stuff, like uh, all the nerd stuff in me. Like there's so much cool stuff we can do from an education standpoint to show people um, how to get more in touch with their creativity instead of taking it away from them. I it like it scares me, and we have like a big crisis coming with like what AI can do to produce creativity. I'm less interested in that. I'm more interested in how we can use AI to teach it and to um, sort of spread it. So, I mean, I guess what I'll say is every time a new technology is invented, there are artists who make it their mission to figure it out and use it as a tool for self-expression. When photography was invented, people became photographers. When film was invented, people became filmmakers. A lot of the early instances of an artwork within a specific technology are simply exploring the boundaries of that technology. The early photographers were scientists and inventors as much as they were visual artists. They actually did 
didn't think of themselves as visual arts and artists. And until the 1960s, photography was actually shown in separate galleries from fine art galleries for the most part. It took a long time for the mainstream art world to validate photography as a fine art in its own. It was a huge threat. In its own right. It was a huge threat, but it also freed painters and, uh, and, uh, drafts people up from the representational burden of painting. When you have the advent of photography, all of a sudden you have impressionism, you have fauvism, you have abstract expressionism, you have data, you have all of these amazing tools. And so my point is that we are in the very early days of things like VR. We are basically at this point just exploring the boundaries of what a medium like VR. I mean, there have been AI chatbots since the early days of net art in the 90s. Um, And, you know, every time I see one, you know, it's it's cute, but they're all very similar. I think that now a lot of that work is still about the medium and you know, it never really goes away. I mean, most painting these days is still about the medium in its own way. But, you know, I, th- I think that we're we're just at the beginning of seeing the range of self-expression that these tools will provide to us. I agree. And, and what we're exploring um, at Absolute Art is we're, we're trying to see what that application can look in offline experiences. So, and how can it actually be useful, whether it's augmented or uh, what, how can we actually make it not sort of kitschy at the risk of sounding um, a little horrible for the things that have gone on, but how do we make it actually useful? And if you look at different industries like fashion and look what Burberry has done with their stores, right? They have used all these technologies to actually completely change the way you're interacting with the stores where you're in the changing room and you need something and you want to see how something's going to look in a different color. And you can do all of those things without leaving your changing room because they've used the technology in a way that is helpful um, to the experience. So that's what we're exploring. Like, how do we bring in these technologies not only to make you more one with the art, like maybe you're standing in it. Like, how do we bring those things together? But then also, how do we use it to make the experience helpful and useful and different? I like that. We got to wrap. No. No, nothing else. No, no, nothing else. Can I plug my podcast? I was going to say, you guys can do a quick plug. Okay, so the SF Mama app is an on-site experience. So download it and come to SF Mama. Hit me up. I'll let you in for free. Um, that's just for people in this room, not for the listeners out there. But our podcast (laughs) is called Raw Material. You can find it on SoundCloud. Raw Material. Uh, so, uh, mini canvas, watch out for it. It is not live yet, but it's coming live in a few months. Um, and if people are interested in beta testing and things like that, you can find us on Twitter. Absoluteart.com. All you need to know. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Stay of the art. You can find anywhere you listen to your podcast and on tuning. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to hear other great panels from South by Southwest, check out their channel on TuneIn. And next week, we'll be back to our regular format. And I'll be joined by Nahema for an in-depth look at her story, which is incredible, and the evolution of absolute art. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy, and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind-the-scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.